welcome to the HJ Talks About Abuse podcast, the podcast where we talk about sexual abuse cases in the hope that it will assist listeners in openly discussing topics which have been ignored for too long. This podcast is brought to you by the abuse team at Hugh James. We are lawyers, so we tend to speak about the legal aspects of abuse cases, but we aren't too shy to speak up about the broader issues faced by survivors of sexual abuse too. We hope that you find it interesting, but more than that, if you are a survivor of sexual abuse, we hope that you find our discussion empowering. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Felina Grosvenor from the abuse team at Hugh James. And today I am doing a Meet the Team episode with Alan Collins. Those of you who have listened before will know that Alan Collins is the partner in the abuse team at Hugh James and he is a regular host to the podcast. So welcome, Alan. Hi, Felina. Thank you for having me on the podcast. <laughs> Pleasure. Put you in the hot seat this time. So what I wanted to do is just give the audience a chance to get to know you more. So I'll just crack straight on. So, Alan, yeah. tell me, how did you get into law? Well, I went straight from law school to private practice way back in 1988. So I finished law school at Guildford in the July of 1988. And on the 1st of August, I started my articles with a firm called Diabetes and Co down on the Hampshire coast on the, yeah, 34 years ago. And what area of law were you doing initially? Well, in those days, you did a bit of everything. So the firm was general practice, but they had quite a large criminal law department. And in those days, most firms made their living from conveyancing, wills and probate. And um, that firm was no different, but they had a big crime department. And uh, so I found myself being drawn further and further into into that kind of work. So did you have a length of your career doing a lot of criminal matters then before you came on to abuse claims? Yes. So my background is is crime, initially purely defence work. And then after I, I qualified as a solicitor in 1990, I started to do a bit of prosecution as well. So I think I did crime for all the way through the 1990s. And is that a turn that you expected to happen or did you sort of fall into criminal work? I've always been interested in criminal work. The whole idea of becoming a, a lawyer was through being taken along to the local magistrate's court which was Petersfield in Hampshire. When I was at school, one of the teachers took us along, took the class along to the magistrate's court to see what, you know, to see what it was all about. So we had an insight and uh, I found it fascinating. And that's when the seed was sown. And I've always been interested in crime, in criminal work. And uh, so, yeah, that's where it all goes back to. And so you've said that you started doing defence work, moved into prosecution, alongside the defence. How did that move into abuse work, into abuse claims? Well, I remember being at Portsmouth Crown Court one afternoon on a case and I was out in the corridor and this gentleman came up to me and literally said to me, what do I do now? And I was thrown for a moment. I thought this was a 
a client, someone I'd forgotten about. I thought, oh, Struve, you know, that was what was running through my head. But no, he went on to explain that he had come out of court. He'd given evidence against his abuser who'd been convicted and sent to prison. And he was saying to me, literally, what do I do now? What he was explaining to me was that he'd been abused as a youngster, like many a victim or survivor, had got on with his life, put it all behind him. And then one day there was a knock on the door. It was the police. Police said, are you so-and-so, so-and-so? He said, yes, can we talk to you? And basically they were investigating. I think it was a school, but anyway, whatever it was. And his whole world was then turned upside down. Pandora's box was opened. He gave evidence on behalf of the prosecution and the abuser was convicted and sent to prison. But along the way, he'd lost his job, he'd lost his family because his whole world had been turned upside down. And as a result of all of that, he'd lost his family and lost his job. So he was saying to me, what do I do now? Because what he was getting on at was he needed to rebuild his life. And so move the story on a bit, he became my first abuse client and we brought a case for him and I know it was successful. Whether he he was able to rebuild his life or not, I can't remember now because it's a long time ago. This would have been in the early 2000s, I should think, probably 20 years ago. So that's the first case that I had representing a victim, a survivor who wanted to bring their own case as a result of being involved in a successful prosecution. So just for the audience, um, just to sort of bridge the gap a little bit. So what that means is once he'd gone through the criminal process, he then was looking for compensation. So what we do at the abuse team. Do you remember what we successful in, in getting any compensation for him? Do you yes, remember? I know the case was successful, but of course for him it wasn't about compensation per se. It was about rebuilding his life and the only means that would have enabled him to rebuild his life, hopefully, would be through obtaining compensation so that he could start to, you know, put his life back together. And I do remember, I do remember going off on a tangent a little bit. Another case, a successful case, this was a case from South Wales, again, another teacher case. My client has given evidence on behalf of the prosecution and his abuser, school teacher, being convicted and sent to prison. And on the back of that, we pursued a civil claim for him. He got his compensation and, um, and that was it. Case closed. And then many, many months later, I got an email from him. So you open up the emails in the morning and there's this email from him. I thought, oh, gosh, what's happened? You know, what is he, you know, why is he contacting me? And actually, it was a very humbling email because he had written to me to say, thank you for reuniting me with my family. Wow. Yeah. And of course, what that was about was getting him the compensation so that he could get the treatment and the therapy that he needed so that he could become part of his own family again. Because I do remember that Pandora's box had been opened for him and that had caused him enormous problems in his relationships with his own family. And of course, that could have been, you know, permanently damaging. But You know, he was able, as he said in the email, to draw a line in the sand and move on. That's pretty powerful. And that's why it's always important that when we're talking about bringing cases for survivors and victims, 
that it's often about that sort of thing. So you've obviously known from, you know, day one really of working in this area that the outcomes can be massive. They really are. And I'm sure you get a lot of, you know, job satisfaction out of that. You've obviously stayed in abuse work. When did you become exclusive working on abuse claims? I guess, well, we were 2022 now. I, I guess it's a good 12, 13 years ago. And is that when you came to Hugh James or did you come to Hugh James? No, at some no, no. So before Hugh James, I was at Pannoni, which had offices in London and Manchester. And then before that, I was still with the firm down on the south coast. And, you know, once you start with one case and if you make a success of it and the practice has a tendency to grow and you start to get a reputation, for better or worse. And I think probably for me, the big change, sea change, was when I became involved in the Jersey abuse scandal, as it was known, which was um, about 2008. So that's what, a good 14 years ago now. So for those listening, could you just give us a, a brief overview as to what you mean by that? Well, gosh, that would be a podcast on the path. <laughs> so late in the 2007 or maybe early part of 2008, Jersey hit the headlines, not for the best of reasons. There was a, a children's home, an infamous children's home called Hodegaren, which for decades taken in children and young people and there were allegations going back many years physical sexual and emotional abuse and the story of what had taken place at Hodegren or allegedly taken place at Hodegren hit the news headlines internationally there were allegations and there might have been bodies buried in the ground and um, that turned out not to be the case at all but the case was certainly um, notorious because it revealed a history of allegations not being properly dealt with. Some may describe it as, a, um, as there being some kind of cover-up over the years. Certainly, I think I can say through the victims that I ended up representing, they were at the bottom end of the sort of food chain, as it were, and felt second-class citizens. And there was a lot of stigma with being in the children's home and so on. And yes, there was a, a very poor history of neglect and poor care and abuse. And a number of perpetrators were successfully prosecuted and sent to prison and so on. How yes. many claimants were you representing in relation to this? Or have you represented over the years for Jersey? Well, the, you know, the case evolved and um, brought in other institutions in Jersey as well. I think in, in the end... Over the years, I must have ended up representing, you know, somewhere between 130 and 200 clients, whether in Jersey, the UK, or further afield. You know, we had clients in Australia and Europe, yeah, all over the place, and uh, we represented them in there in the cases that were, were brought to try and get them redress. So that was a major undertaking and um, you know that sort of changed my practice so to speak from being a sort of litigator who dealt with serious clinical negligence and personal injury cases but also happened to deal with child abuse as well to one where it was you know predominantly child abuse and then on the back of Jersey you know the Jimmy Savile 
scandal broke and that became all-encompassing and that um, evolved as well. And there were allegations made against other celebrities in quotes and um, with which um, I'm sure we're all familiar with. And because of that, I know that you've had interviews, for example, you've been on documentaries, you've obviously built a profile really as someone who is at the forefront of abuse work. Would you agree with that? Well, I think it's fair to say there are not many lawyers who are prepared to take on these cases. So the field is rather small. It's, you know, the subject matter is appalling, but the cases are interesting. And the people that we see, people that you see, the people that I see, need legal representation. And that's what we're here for. We're lawyers and uh, that's what we do. No matter how difficult and unpleasant it might be. Well, you've completely just, you know, to the words out of my mouth, it is difficult and can be unpleasant. So how do you feel that you tackle that? Do you feel that, you know, it's something in your personality or is it something that you do to stay in this area of work? I think because I've been lucky, I had a charmed childhood. I've had a charmed life, so to speak, I am able to remain sufficiently detached. I think if you'd had some kind of trauma as a child or a young person, you might find it difficult to remain objective. And therefore, you then find it very difficult to do the job. I think um, because you can remain detached, empathetic, but detached, or able to be objective and give the advice and representation that people need. They don't want a shoulder to cry on, they need a lawyer. They need a shoulder to cry on, they can go to somebody else. I know that sounds perhaps a little bit harsh in a sense, but that's it's, it's an important distinction. No, I mean, I think that ties into really my next question was, you know, what is your approach with clients that maybe just differs to other solicitors or other areas of law? And what you just said there was, you are empathetic, but you are objective and you're there to look through the trauma and give advice so you'd like to add to that yeah well I've seen lawyers try to do these cases but they become emotionally involved and that is the wrong way to to go you know it's that's not going to help the client and it's certainly not going to do you any favors if you become emotionally involved unwittingly you can't you've got to be able to stand back be objective You've got to listen and not just hear. Big distinction. It's not easy to discover the difference sometimes yourself, but you do have to try and find a way of listening to the person, listening to the client and not just hearing them because you've got to A, understand and B, advise and C, represent. I think that's definitely something that I've seen you do. As we've touched upon, we act for people who can be very traumatised and sometimes getting their account from them. So actually delving in and listening and probably hearing their story, you know, it can take some navigating. And I know that's something you do a lot. Turning to the podcast, this is obviously something that's been running for some time now. and, And you started the podcast with my colleague who's who's not with us in the team anymore but I just wondered what were the motivations for you to start the podcast well that was Sam Barker who's now in Australia I think the um, idea was that 
the world is moving, state the, the obvious, at an ever-increasing rate. Communication is evolving all the time. And the pair of us thought that a podcast would be a useful means of communication. You know, once upon a time, it was it was newspapers. Everyone read a newspaper. That doesn't happen these days. You know, people don't go out and buy a newspaper to get all their information. You know, you get your, your news and your information online. And so um, we thought, well, podcast is a new medium, very popular, increasing popularity. And therefore, it would be a good idea, so we thought, to put out a podcast each week to talk about issues which may be of use and interest to survivors, to victims, to those who support them and work with them, and those generally interested in what is a complex legal area. Because at the end of the day, leaving the subject matter to one side, the cases are legally interested, interesting because we're often having to challenge in one way or another, whether it's the time bar or vicarious liability. So for those with an academic in interest in the subject matter, it's a good source of um, news and conversation. Yeah, definitely. And I think the turning actually to the subject matter, what you've done is made quite a difficult subject easier to digest on some of the podcasts and just taking away the fact that I think a lot of people think, well, you can't talk about those things. You know, it's not polite to, it's, you know, you're not able to. So having it in a more natural conversation, I think, works very well. Still very much a taboo subject. You know, it's very easy for people to say, oh, yeah, well, we're, we're more prepared to talk about this sort of thing in 2022 than we were in 2012. At one level, yes, but other levels, no. And, you know, the way some of the stories get reported, some of the cases get reported, sometimes I think we haven't learned anything over the last 10 years and we're possibly going backwards, which is another reason why these podcasts are so important. Yeah, I completely agree with that. So just on my final question, Alan, it's really just an opportunity for you if you had any advice or words of wisdom for those listening. If you are listening this podcast and you are a survivor or you know someone who's a survivor you must be in a position where you are thinking about things and I always say if you're in a position where you're thinking about things you probably realize now's the time to jump off the fence one way or the other because there's no right or wrong if you are a survivor and you do not know whether to disclose, go to the police or go to a lawyer. You've got to do what's right for you. But whatever decision you make, you should accept it and live with it and respect it. What you shouldn't do is sit on the fence because people who sit on fences get splinters. And the best bit of advice I can, I suppose, is I can give on top of that is to remember what I said at the beginning of the podcast about the client who emailed me to say thank you for reuniting me with my family he said I'm now able to draw a line in the sand and move on and I think that's important for all victims and survivors is doing that thing that enables you to draw a line in the sand and move on great thank you so to those listening I hope that you have enjoyed getting to know Alan a little bit more and Alan obviously will continue to hear from you as the podcast goes forward if anyone listening has any thoughts or comments, then you can contact the team at hjtalks 
at aboutabuse.co.uk. So just leaves me to thank you again, Alan, for your time. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of HJ Talks About Abuse. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to speak to us about something you've heard today, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at aboutabuse at hjtalks.co.uk.